Welcome to Murder by Nature, where we discuss true crime, mystery disappearances, and unsolved cases. I'm Jasmine Hernandez, your host. Before we dive into this episode, we're going to go through the references that made today possible. Oxygen, Unspeakable Crimes, The Killing of Jessica Chambers, Investigation Discovery, Reddit, Unsolved Mysteries Wicca, DreeShare.com, and People Magazine. Jessica Chambers was born February 2nd, 1995. She was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed American girl from Clarksdale, Mississippi. She was born to Lisa and Ben Chambers. Jessica had four brothers and three sisters. Christopher, Ben Allen, Brandon, Amanda, Ashley, Annabelle, and Steve. Jessica was a typical 19-year-old girl. She was an ex-cheerleader, She worked at a clothing store and had plenty of attention from the boys. She was known to have sold drugs from time to time and had an arrest on her record, but it was hard to find anyone in Cortland or Batesville who seemed to have an issue with Jessica. She was well-liked by almost everyone. Jessica had a volatile relationship with her boyfriends who had trouble with the law and was known by her family to sometimes react violently during fights. Jessica's sister, Amanda... And her stepmother, Debbie Chambers, said that Jessica's behavior changed when she was 17 years old. Her brother, Alan, died in a car crash during that time, and she was just never the same again. On December 6, 2014, neighbors called the police as there was a burning car on the side of the road in a small town of Cortland, Mississippi. At 8.10 p.m., volunteer firefighters were the first to arrive on the scene of the crime. Firefighters responded said that they saw Jessica walking towards them only in her underwear and critically burned over 93% of her body. A flammable liquid had been poured on her body, down her throat, and up her nose. They remembered that she was shaking so bad like if she was cold. Despite suffering from smoke inhalation and having severely burned on her entire body, Jessica managed to escape. As firefighters were helping Jessica, they asked her if she knew who did this. Firefighters say that Jessica looked up at them and said, Eric did this. Eric did this. At 8.30 p.m., Jessica's father, Ben Chambers, received a call from the police. The police informed Ben that there had been an accident and Jessica had been burnt. In a state of shock, Ben asked his wife, Debbie, to go to Lisa Chambers' home which was Jessica's mother, and pick her up so they can go to the hospital. Lisa remembers Debbie arriving in her driveway when she came outside. She was confused on why Debbie was there. Debbie then tells her someone set Jessica on fire. In disbelief, Lisa tells Debbie, that can't be true. I just spoke to Jessica a minute ago, and she was on her way home. When the parents arrived at the hospital, they were quickly met with numerous doctors who were telling them that there was nothing left that they can do with her body. She was born 93% and she needed a lung transplant and this hospital could not provide that for her. The family was devastated. As the family is allowed to see Jessica, Lisa remembers only seeing her baby. She didn't see the burns or the trauma that her daughter endured. She saw her young little girl. As Lisa was holding her daughter's hand, she tells her that it's okay to go, baby girl. It's okay to go. With family by her side, Jessica takes her last breath on earth. By all accounts, 
Jessica suffered an agonizing death. As the night starts to calm, Lisa has to make the devastating call to Jessica's siblings. She calls AJ, Jessica's sister. She lived 1,200 miles away with her husband and her children because her husband was in the military. So as she's feeling hopeless, she created a Facebook account, Justice for Jessica, to help get the case out to more people and hopefully get some answers on what happened that night, as the family had no idea what could have happened or who would have done this. As police start examining the crime scene, they find Jessica's keys along the road near the crime scene. Her cell phone was examined by police in order to determine her movements on the day of her murder. Jessica Chambers spent the morning with two friends until about 12.31 p.m. when she went to her mother's house. Jessica's mom said that Jessica got into her PJs, curled up on the recliner, and took a nap. Later that afternoon, she received a text from someone at around 5 p.m. She told her mother that she was going to go get something to eat and clean out her car. Location data from her phone showed that she went to the nearby Batesville around 6 p.m., but returned to Corkland around 6.30. It's not known in what she was doing in Batesville, but it just shows that that's where she went. About 15 minutes later, after arriving in Cortland, she called her mother to let her know that she would be heading home in just a little bit to clean her room. Jessica arrived at a gas station about a mile and a half away from where her body was found. This was the last time that Jessica was seen alive on any surveillance video. At 7.30, she drove to the area where her body would be found half an hour later. Jessica was murdered. There was a social media wildfire of pages popping up in support and trolls for Jessica's murder. It was like the world wanted to live stream the investigation. Two days after the murder, the Corkland Police Department set up a special task force to try and find the murderer of this horrific crime. Police searched the town of Cortland and neighboring towns, interviewing anyone by the name of Eric or Derek to see if they can find a connection to this case. They want to ensure that anyone with nicknames close to this or even middle names, as this was the name that Jessica gave, but no one ended up being a credible witness or lead for this connection. Armchair detectives took to social media to sleuth out various suspects in the town. This caused a war within the town. People weren't comfortable knowing if that person maybe killed someone or maybe this person killed them and if they were next. They started to say that Jessica's ex-boyfriend, Brian Rude, was the one who murdered Jessica. They said that Brian held a grudge against Jessica and killed her out of rage. Teresa Flemings, Brian's mother, stated that her son would never hurt Jessica. Jessica lived with them for a few months during a rough patch And she just loved them dearly. She told People Magazine that Brian moved to Iowa and was engaged at the time of the murder, and that neither of them had spoken or seen each other since May of 2013. Social media turned Jessica's case into a race war. There was online speculation that she had dated black men in the past and had been attacked by the white supremacists for being in an interracial relationship, or contrary, Online conspiracy mongers theorized that maybe the perpetrator was black because Jessica had been in a gang and was killed in retaliation for trying to get out. Jessica's friend claimed that she sold marijuana and she was connected to some shady people. She thought Jessica got in over her head with some people 
and found out some things that she shouldn't have known because she tends to be a smartass. Jessica's murder started to divide the town in a racial division. Her father, Ben Chambers, believed that Roger Lynn Hence killed his daughter. See, Ben had a drug problem, and he had for a minute. And Roger threatened to kill Jessica over an argument over drugs in the past and felt like this was some type of retaliation for that argument or that incident. Lastly, Jessica was currently dating a man named Travis Sanford, who was in jail for a marijuana distribution. The police believed that maybe Travis put a hit on her from jail because he thought that she was cheating on him, but it wasn't until they actually met up with Travis to find that his guilt was real and what he was experiencing wasn't that of someone that would murder someone. He was in intense pain and just missed her. As police are asking friends and family who Jessica may have been with, they get a name. Quentin tells. During the interview with Quentin, he tells police that he was with Jessica that morning. He stated that they'd gone to a store in Batesville with her friend, and then she dropped him off at home, but he didn't see her again the rest of the evening. Police noticed that Quentin had burns on his arms and his hands, so they asked him, where did you get those burns from? He tells them that his family had a bonfire, and while he was drinking, he slipped and fell in the fire. That it wasn't serious enough to go to the hospital, but it still left a little bit of a mark. The police were able to confirm his story with his family, and they let him go. Once police got the data back from Jessica's phone, this is when things start to take a turn. The location data from Jessica and Quentin's cell phone shows that the two of them were together until about 7.30 p.m. It showed that he traveled from Batesville with her and back. This is when the police think, "Mm, something's not right here, and we have to bring him in for a second interview. As police are questioning Quentin, the same questions, he's giving them the exact same answers. It wasn't until that he was told they had his location data and surveillance footage that showed that he was lying to them. This is when he changes his story again. He said that he was with her until about 7 p.m. and Quentin claims that a friend of his came and picked him up that night and he didn't see her again. This friend was Big Mike. And on the night in question, Big Mike stated that he wasn't with Quentin. Big Mike stated that he was in Nashville and a Tennessee Titans game and had receipts to prove that he was being honest. And police looked at the story and they were able to confirm that Big Mike indeed was at this game. He had parking tickets, he had game tickets, and he had a receipt from inside the stadium showing that he was there during the game. This is when the police start to confront Quentin with all of the lies that he's been telling them. So he changes his story yet again. This time, he said that Jessica picked him up that night and the two went to Taco Bell in Batesville. He claimed that the two went back to his house, they sat in his driveway and listened to some music before she left his driveway at 7 p.m. However, her location data and the surveillance footage from the gas station next door showed that she didn't leave the house until 7.30, and when she left, she drove to the area where she was later found on fire. 
Authorities felt like it was extremely unlikely that Jessica would encounter someone else in the 30 minutes between leaving Quinn's house and being discovered on fire. Police proceeded to take a sample of Quentin's DNA, which was found to be a match on Jessica's keys. The police also had surveillance video of a vehicle believed to be Quentin's sister stopping briefly at his home at 7.50 before driving towards the crime scene. Surveillance video also helped show that Quentin had changed his clothes three times that day. Within an hour of Jessica's death, he also deleted all communications with Jessica from his phone, and he stopped checking in on her, even though they've been in constant contact the entire time, which is, which is a little strange. He's texting her, asking her how she is, if she gets home, um, telling her goodnight. But on the night of her death, all of that just stops. He doesn't text her to see if she got home that night as he did the night before. And he doesn't even check on her that next morning before he's even told that she's dead. That's just a little strange. The deleted messages that Quentin went through, it showed that in the week prior to, its, to her death, he repeatedly was asking her to have sex with him. Each time, she would deny his request. The messages also showed that she had denied him sex four times on the day of her murder. And I want to add in here, Jessica did have a boyfriend. She was dating a guy named Travis Sanford. But Travis was in jail. And Quentin said that they had sex previously, and all of a sudden she was denying him now. This will come back into the story. In October of 2017, Quentin went on trial for Jessica's murder. The prosecution team brought strong evidence. The prosecutor had incriminating text messages and voicemails that Quentin would leave Jessica. The district attorney, John Kappen, and ADA, J.L. Hale, brought forward surveillance footage of Quentin in the gas station the night that Jessica died. They argued that when Quentin was told of Jessica's death, he didn't have a reaction. This was strange to them. They argued Quentin had just spent most of the day with her and the day priors to her murder. Jessica was someone who Quentin had a lot of contact with in the last few weeks, but he didn't have any form of reaction to the confirmation that the girl who died in that fire was Jessica. Jail Hill confirmed Quentin had deleted text messages from Jessica and her contact from his phone. When they asked him why he did that, he told the investigators that he didn't see a reason to keep her in his phone anymore if she was dead. So he erased her from his life. Prosecutors believed while Quentin was in his driveway that he tried to have sex with Jessica. However, she resisted. They believed that he became so enraged from the constant rejection that he suffocated her until she was unconscious. And in order to distance himself from the crime, he then drove her car to the area where it was later found. Prosecutors believe that he then ran on foot to his sister's home nearby, took her car, picked up gasoline from his house, and then he returned to Jessica's car to set it on fire with her inside. Quinn's defense claimed that the person whom Jessica identified was Eric or Derek, and that was the real killer. They argued that Quentin told police that a sex offender named Derek Holmes was stalking Jessica, and residents claimed to have seen the two of them together. 
this and um, this piece of information untimely helped Quentin. It helped him. Since the defense attorney pointed out that she knew Quentin's name, the defense attorney Darla Palmer accused the district attorney John Chapman of allegedly trying to pursue another client of Palmer's who was charged with capital murder in another case to testify that Jessica Chambers used to refer to Quentin Tells as Eric. However, Derek was ruled out. Derek Holmes, the one that they said was stalking him. He was ruled out by investigators based on his alibi and several interviews. He wasn't anywhere around where Jessica was lit on fire, and he had people to state that for him. Furthermore, doctors and other experts noted that it would have been very difficult for Jessica to say anything properly due to the injuries of her mouth and throat. Remember, someone poured a flammable accelerant down Jessica's throat, her nose, her entire face, and her body, and then she was lit on fire. This would have been extremely hard for her to talk, let alone for her her words to make any sense. During the initial investigation, it was noted that Jessica didn't use her phone to talk to anyone named Eric or Derek in the 30 days prior to her death. Intelligence analysis Paul Roulette testified regarding Jessica Chambers and Quentin Tell's phone. He claimed that the data put Jessica and Quentin together at the same location just before or possibly even during Jessica's murder. During cross-examination, though, the defense team questioned Roulette about the accuracy of this data. The cell phone data appeared to be damning, but according to the defense reports and their expert witnesses, cell phone towers ping and any other related evidence is not always conclusive, especially in rural areas where they only have a few towers. Remember, Cortland is a small town in Mississippi. It's very rural. There's not a ton of stuff happening out there. So the defense is saying because of this, they only have maybe five towers in the entire city. So it's not always going to be accurate on where they're pinging or how they're pinging. This comes up in another case. Sorry, the Anin Saeed case. His cell phone data was what encrypted him and ultimately got the guilty verdict. It said that his phone pinged in different locations from where he said he wasn't at. So this has changed now a little bit, but it's something that comes into play with this crime too. Sadly, the verdict was read as not guilty. This crushed Jessica's family. However, it was discovered that the jury misunderstood the instructions that the judge gave them as many of the jurors had voted for guilty. The judge sent them back in to deliberate again. But an hour later, the juror returned and said that they could not reach a verdict. A mistrial was declared. As the family continued to fight for Jessica's justice, Quentin was put on trial a second time for the murder of Jessica Chambers. A new trial began on September 24, 2018 in a different county to help to ensure that no one knew the case. During this trial, Quentin's sister took the stand. She said that she was with Big Mike, and they had already disproved that Big Mike was at the game, and that the police were lying about Big Mike's whereabouts. 
The DA also argued that if Quentin drove Jessica's car to the crime scene and then walked to his sister's house, that it would have taken him 43 minutes and it wouldn't have been possible, according to cell phone data, that he can do this. The DA said that it would have been extremely hard to meet the timelines that the prosecution team was giving. Even if Quentin was driving, it would have only been 29 minutes to get to his sister's house, drive home, get a gas tank, and get back to the scene of the crime. And this doesn't include any wait times or needing to maybe stop and get gas somewhere. They said that Quentin's sister wasn't within a good walking distance from the crime scene. It was nearby, but again, they're in a rural area, so it would have taken him some time to get there. And he would have then had to call someone to come pick him up from the crime scene. So he would have had to wait a little bit because it wasn't just off the road. It was kind of in a wooded area when you're going up the mountains and there's like those little streets that go down, something like that. However, during trial, the new jury was still unable to reach a verdict. So a mistrial was again declared. Jessica's family was devastated. Lisa, Jessica's mother, died October 29th, 2021, never knowing if there'd be justice for her daughter. Travis Sanford was killed in a dice game in March of 2019, a few days after being released from a seven-year jail sentence. Travis's children were inside the home when this happened. The Mississippi Bureau of Investigations, Tom Douglas, one of the lead investigators on the case, retired in 2021, and the ATF agent, Scott Meadows, another lead in the investigation, had been transferred out of state to a different department. Jay Hales now works for the U.S. State District Attorney Office, and Rolette was working for the Department of Defense out of state. The sheriff, Dennis Darby, was beaten in the last election, and his detectives have largely retired or gone to another agency. Jerry King, who was the one that found Jessica's keys, was killed July 28, 2021, when his ATV was rear-ended by a county deputy. With all the main members of Jessica's defense, it's unknown if the family will ever have a third trial against Quentin Towns. As of today, July 2nd, 2022, no one has been charged or convicted in the murder of Jessica Chambers. Even though they know that it was Quentin Towns, he was never given a guilty verdict. And as of right now, there's no third trial that's on the books for him to go to jail for. It's just something that they don't know if they'll ever get that justice, knowing that this person was the one that did it, and all evidence point to them. In 2015, Quentin Tells was a suspect in a second killing, the torture and murder of Ming Chown Hazan. I may have said that wrong, and I'm so sorry. She was an international grad student at the University of Louisiana in Monroe. Her body was found in her apartment on August 8, 2015. Police believe that the 34-year-old had been tortured and stabbed more than 30 times in order for her to reveal her PIN code to her debit card. Police found that her body was located 10 days later when a neighbor called about inactivity at her apartment. Evidence linked Quentin Tells to the crime as he was caught using her debit card after her murder and police have obtained cell phone and ATM data that they say places him at the scene of the crime. 
Two times on the night of her death, someone used her phone to call a Chase Bank, the number on the back of her debit card, and hung up the call. This was done at 8.16 and 8.18 p.m. Someone also used Quentin's phone to call the exact same number and enter her debit card and her PIN. Quentin's trial was set for March 14, 2022, but was delayed due to the defense trying to find a discredit with a piece of evidence that they had. The new date has not been scheduled for this crime. We will be covering this case in the near future and when more information is released. Currently, right now, when you look up this case, it just links back to Jessica's case. And I get because the suspect is the same one, but not a ton of evidence is coming out for Min Chen Huzan's case. And I want to make sure that she has a voice as well, because she was murdered by the same person, but for something completely different. My thoughts on this case. Jessica was killed in a way that no one ever expected that she would be. When you ask a group of people the scariest way to die, being burnt alive is one of those ways. To me, this crime was a crime of passion. It was a crime of revenge. It was a crime of something that I feel, based on the evidence, Jessica shouldn't have endured. I do think that Quentin Tells is the one guilty of murdering Jessica. I think he wanted something more with her and she didn't want to give that because she was trying to be faithful to Travis. Jessica's family had to go through so much in the short time that they had with Jessica. She had a brother that died just a few years before Jessica did in a car accident. And that really struck a nerve with Jessica. For two years, she changed who she was. She didn't want to do cheerleading anymore. She didn't want to hang out with the friends that she was friends with. And her family knew that there was something wrong with this. But the grief and trauma of losing someone that you're so close with does change people. Ultimately, it changed Jessica for the worst. And she ended up running with a bad crowd, as her ex Brian and friends would say. It's just a sad day to see a beautiful woman be tortured the way that she was. I do hope that there is a third trial and I hope that Quentin pays for both murders that he's connected to. And I really hope that his family stops protesting, saying that Quentin's innocent. Because I'm sorry, how can a man be innocent that's guilty for two different murders of two different women in two different areas? That man is a killer and one that needs to be locked up. That brings us to the end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to Murder by Nature. If you enjoyed our show, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any streaming platform that you're currently on. And be sure to come back next Saturday for our new episode. Until then, I am your host, Jasmine Hernandez. Don't forget to stay safe. Don't get murdered or murder people, you lovely humans. Have a happy Saturday.